Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. A judge greenlights a lawsuit using environmental law to challenge President Biden's immigration policies. What's at the heart of the argument? Massachusetts holds its primary election today. We take a look at the candidates in the race for governor. The state of Oregon is planning to introduce universal health care by 2026. It could be the first state in the nation to do so. A Trump-appointed D.C. judge is allowing a lawsuit to use environmental law against Biden immigration policies. Entity's Jessica Beatty has more on the unusual case. The lawsuit relies on the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA, to challenge Biden's actions on illegal immigration. One plaintiff is a cattle rancher in Arizona. The complaint says after Biden took office, the rancher saw illegal crossings on his land increase by eight or nine times from what it was before. He says the border jumpers degrade his land and leave behind trash or even bury drugs and guns. The environmental law was signed by former President Richard Nixon. It was a milestone in protecting nature from damage by the federal government. The complaint argues if NEPA should apply to any government policy, it should be to federal policies that induce population growth. Attorney Julie Axelrod from the Center for Immigration Studies filed the complaint. In an article about the ruling, she said the case will proceed to litigate the merits of whether the Biden administration's actions on immigration have had significant environmental impacts and if those impacts have been felt by the plaintiffs. Meanwhile, Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot is frustrated with Texas Governor Greg Abbott for busing illegal immigrants to her city. 50 people arrived in Chicago Sunday after more than 95 arrived earlier. Lightfoot, a Democrat, said officials are working with nonprofits to provide a real welcome, but she's frustrated by what she described as a lack of coordination. There could be a level of coordination and cooperation, but he chooses to do none of those things. We have yet to hear from anybody in an official capacity from Texas. That's unacceptable. Texas started busing illegal immigrants to Washington, D.C. in April, later adding New York City and Chicago. All three are so-called sanctuary cities. They limit or forbid cooperation with immigration authorities. Governor Abbott said he'll continue busing illegal immigrants to sanctuary cities until the federal government secures the border. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. There is a primary election in Massachusetts today, so we're taking a closer look at the Bay State's race for governor. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the candidates. The gubernatorial Republican primary pits Jeff Deal against Chris Doughty. Incumbent Republican Governor Charlie Baker has decided not to seek a third term. Dowdy is a businessman and a political newcomer who describes himself as moderate. He touts his experience running a manufacturing company and says it gives him the knowledge to be a successful chief executive. Trump-backed Deal is a former state representative. He ran for the U.S. Senate in 2018 and is popular among Republicans, winning the party's endorsement by a large margin in May. He's opposed COVID-19 mandates. Trump endorsed Deal last October, describing him as strong on crime and election integrity. Both candidates say they are pro-life and want to make Massachusetts more affordable. For Democrats, Attorney General Maura Healey faces no challengers. Her only rival stopped campaigning in June. Massachusetts has a history of electing fiscally conservative Republican governors as a check on a legislature where Democrats have held a majority. Polls are open between 7 a.m. and 8 p.m. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. 
Turning now to health policy, Oregon is planning to become the first state in the nation to roll out a universal or single-payer health care system. If approved, the plan could be implemented by 2026. Here are the details. For the past two years, the Oregon Joint Task Force on Universal Health Care has been outlining the details of a universal health care plan. It would cover everyone living in Oregon and be funded by new individual income taxes as well as a new payroll tax paid by employers. The task force is a state-appointed agency with 20 members, including four lawmakers and several public officials, tribal members, and healthcare and community advocates. If approved, the plan would be implemented in 2026. The task force says it would cover everyone, regardless of immigration status, as well as out-of-state residents who work for Oregon-based employers. The agency explains, quote, the plan recover at the least services now offered to people on a Medicaid, Medicare, or Affordable Care Act plan. There would be no co-pays or deductibles. Instead, people would pay new taxes based on their ability to pay. Under the plan, medical debt for covered services would no longer exist. Oregonians would pay more taxes to fund the program, with higher earners expecting to pay as much as 15 percent. Private sector and government employees would pay a payroll tax of between 7.25 percent and 11 percent. The health care task force will submit its final recommendations to state lawmakers by September 30th. From there, lawmakers would need to decide whether to move forward. If they approve, the proposal would then likely go to the voters. The chairman of the task force, Dr. Bruce Goldberg, said, quote, I think there are a number of legislators who have been very interested and who will be champions for it. President Biden yesterday visited two key swing states that he hopes will turn out in force for his party in November. In a Labor Day speech to union members, he spoke about so-called MAGA Republicans. One of the things that was clear to me is that this new group headed by the former president, the former defeated president, uh, we found ourselves in a situation where we were either going to look forward or look backwards. And it's clear which way he wants to look. It's clear which way the new MAGA Republicans are. They're extreme. It was the second time Biden visited Pennsylvania in less than a week. Trump said in an earlier speech, also in Pennsylvania, that Biden is vilifying at least 75 million Americans. Biden and Trump have both passed through the state recently to support candidates in upcoming elections. Labor Day is the unofficial start of fall and also traditionally starts a political busy season where campaigns work to excite voters for Election Day. That's when control of the House and Senate, as well as some of the country's top governorships, will be decided. And coming up, California's governor signs a bill that raises fast food wages to $22 per hour, among other changes. But critics think the bill isn't fair and could have a negative impact. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. A wildfire on Fairview Avenue in the county of Hammett, California, spread to 2,000 acres, killing two people and injuring another. That's according to the Riverside County Fire Department. The department said the wildfire began shortly after 2 p.m. on Monday and spread rapidly. An evacuation order is in place. The fire, which is 5% contained, has destroyed seven structures and damaged many more. Nine fire crews, six air tankers, four helicopters, and over 260 firefighters have been deployed to tackle the blaze. Last week, a rapidly moving fire in Northern California burned about 4,000 acres of land, destroying hundreds of homes and buildings. California's governor has announced the signing of a law targeting some fast food franchises. It requires a minimum wage of $22 per hour and changes to working conditions. 
The bill will create a 10-member fast food council appointed by Governor Newsom and other state lawmakers. According to the bill, the council will establish minimum standards on wages, working hours, and other conditions for workers at certain fast food restaurants. Opponents have described the bill as hypocritical and ill-considered. The California Restaurant Association argues that the bill unfairly targets some franchises to the detriment of others. McDonald's USA president is also no fan of the bill. He also points out that it targets some workplaces and not others. He says economists have warned it will increase the cost of eating at a quick service restaurant in California by 20 percent at a time when Americans are struggling with inflation. And also in California, a former military contractor known as Fat Leonard has escaped house arrest in San Diego. Leonard Francis orchestrated the largest corruption scandal in U.S. Navy history. He pleaded guilty to bribery and fraud charges in 2015. His escape comes just three weeks ahead of his sentencing. Police alerted U.S. Marshals on Sunday after they discovered Francis missing from his home. He reportedly cut off his GPS monitoring ankle bracelet. U.S. Marshals found it in a portable cooler at his home. Authorities believe Francis had been planning to escape for a while. Neighbors said they recently saw several moving trucks at his home. Staying in the southwest, Arizona state troopers find 46 pounds of possible fentanyl pills during a traffic stop. The pills were hidden inside the compartments of the car. Troopers stopped the car initially because of traffic violations. A trooper searched the car after noticing signs of criminal activity. After the search and investigation, authorities determined that the pills were being smuggled from Nogales, Mexico. That's a border city that connects to Arizona. They think the pills were headed to Phoenix. A photo put out by the Arizona Department of Public Safety shows blue pills bundled into oblong plastic packages. Many have red strings taped onto them. Another photo shows pills hidden in a compartment on the outside of the car near a tire. The 20-year-old driver is a Phoenix resident. He was arrested on drug charges. From illegal drugs to a slaying, opening statements today in the first trial after eight members of a single Ohio family were shot to death more than six years ago. Defendant George Wagner IV is charged in the 2016 slayings of the Roden family in southern Ohio. Wagner faces the death penalty if convicted. A 12-person jury with six alternates was selected last week. Authorities say the shootings of seven adults and a teenage boy stemmed from a dispute over custody of a child. Prosecutors say the Wagners spent months planning the killings motivated by the custody dispute. George Wagner's parents and his brother, Jake Wagner, were also charged. Jake Wagner pleaded guilty last year in the shootings, admitting to killing five of the victims. His plea was part of a deal with prosecutors that spared him from being sentenced to death. Wagner's mother, Angela Wagner, also pleaded guilty to helping plan the murders. His father, George Wagner III, has pleaded not guilty. And authorities in Nevada are looking for a possible suspect in connection to the death of a journalist. Las Vegas Metropolitan Police released these surveillance photos of someone wearing a wide-brimmed hat and bright orange shirt. Authorities say the unnamed person could have been casing the area to commit other crimes before the death of Jeff German. German was found outside of his home Saturday with stab wounds. He worked as a journalist for more than 30 years in Las Vegas. Police are asking people who live and work in the area to review their home and business surveillance footage to see if they recorded the individual. In social media news, Instagram has to pay over $400 million. The fine comes from the Irish Data Protection Commission. They say the platform violated European privacy law. 
The violations have to do with privacy for minors. Instagram made accounts of children between the ages of 13 and 17 public by default. The platform also allowed children to set up business accounts, making their phone numbers and email addresses public. A Meta spokesperson says that these settings were updated more than a year ago and the company has since released several features to protect the information of teenagers, but that doesn't negate the fine. This is the third fine charged by the Irish regulator on a Meta-owned company and they have at least six more investigations related to Meta-owned firms ongoing. This is the second highest fine imposed under Europe's data protection rules. Amazon was fined over $740 million by another data protection authority in July last year. Seafood fans may want to take a close look inside the fridge. St. James Smokehouse announces a voluntary recall of its smoked salmon. The Miami-based company sells throughout the U.S. from New York to Washington State. The Food and Drug Administration says the food may be tainted with listeria. It can cause serious and possibly fatal infections to children, older adults, and people with weak immune systems. The salmon in question was sold by distributors between January and June of this year. As of last week, no related illnesses have been reported. More information is available on the FDA's website. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And just ahead, an earthquake hit China's Sichuan province during a COVID-19 lockdown. Residents there were not allowed to leave their homes, even amid the disaster. Another calamity, this one in South Korea. A powerful typhoon swept through the south of the country, causing at least two deaths and displacing thousands more. We'll have all that and more for you in just a moment. Welcome back. The U.S. Department of Justice has indicted two naturalized citizens of the Marshall Islands on money laundering and bribery charges. The two citizens, Carrie Yen and Gina Joe, sought to establish a mini-state in the Pacific country. To accomplish this, according to the indictment, the two paid tens of thousands of dollars in bribes to officials from the Marshall Islands starting in 2016. Opponents argued that the autonomous state could have become a haven for money laundering and could have fallen under Beijing's control. Yen and Zhou also used a New York-based NGO to set up meetings with officials in the Marshall Islands. The organization has ties to both the United Nations and Beijing. If convicted, the defendants face up to 20 years in prison for committing or conspiring to commit a money laundering crime. The biggest Taiwan arms sale under President Biden coming in at $1.1 billion. But can Washington deliver the weapons in time? Entity's Tiffany Meyer has more on that. Welcome to China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Washington is shoring up Taiwan's defense. The State Department approved a $1.1 billion arms sale to the island on Friday and is waiting for Congress's approval. The pending sale comes after a series of escalations in the three-way tensions between Beijing, Taiwan and the U.S. In early August, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi traveled to Taiwan, making her the highest-ranking U.S. politician to visit the island in 25 years. Soon after, Beijing responded by conducting live military drills near Taiwan. For the first time, Taiwan shot down a Chinese civilian drone that entered its airspace last week. Taiwan's premier said the drone operators ignored Taiwan's warnings to leave, so troops had no choice but to exercise self-defense and shoot. 
The U.S. also sailed two warships through the Taiwan Strait last weekend. Back to the arms sale package, it's the Biden administration's largest arms sale to Taiwan. It includes 60 anti-ship missiles and 100 air-to-air -air missiles. Sales like these sometimes take years to finalize. But the White House senior director for Taiwan and China said the administration tried to accelerate the process. Director Laura Rosenberger explained the administration is acutely aware of the need to expedite delivery. The U.S. can sell up to $45 billion worth of weapons to foreign allies and partners every year. It's a tool for Washington to spread American influence. The Pentagon, White House and State Department are all involved. The State Department oversees the arms sale program, but it has to get final approval from Congress. The Pentagon then carries out the logistics. The Pentagon is trying to speed up its arms sale process. It set up a special task force last month to examine inefficiencies and streamline the process. Analysts say supplying Taiwan with arms in advance is critical. That's because it'd be almost impossible to do so if a war were to break out between Beijing and Taiwan. And even after arms sales are approved, it could take four or five years for the U.S. to actually deliver the weapons. Rupert Hammond Chambers, president of the U.S. Taiwan Business Council, is an expert that tracks U.S. arms sales. He told the Washington Post that none of the weapons approved in the Biden administration's previous sales to Taiwan have been delivered. To further bolster U.S. presence in the Pacific, President Biden will host a summit of island leaders in Washington later this month. The meeting aims to counter China's growing impact on the region. The White House says the summit will discuss climate change, economic recovery, maritime security, and other issues. Twelve Pacific island nations have received invitations, including Papua New Guinea, Fiji, and Samoa. Four are known allies of Taiwan. These are the Marshall Islands, Nauru, Palau, and Tuvalu. Among the invitees is also the Solomon Islands, a focal point of the power struggle between China and the United States in the Pacific. The island nation broke away from Taiwan in 2019 in favor of Beijing. In April of this year, it further reached a security agreement with China. As of now, the White House has not yet disclosed what countries have confirmed their attendance at the summit. The Trump administration's tariffs on Chinese imports will stay in place for now. That's after requests from several companies. Tariffs on hundreds of billions of dollars worth of Chinese imports will stay in place for now. The Biden administration made the announcement Friday as it continues a review of the duties imposed by former President Trump. Tariffs usually expire after four years, but the U.S. Trade Representative's office said that it received requests from companies and other interested parties to keep the tariffs. Those were imposed in 2018 and 2019. A formal review of whether to keep the tariffs in place will be held, but it could take months. The Biden administration had been considering whether to remove some tariffs as a way to reduce inflation pressures, though some say this wouldn't work. A survivor of Communist China's Cultural Revolution is sending out a warning. The United States is following a similar path. NTD spoke with Asian American Coalition for Education President Mike Zhao for more. The United States is dangerously close to repeating China's cultural revolution. That's according to Asian American Coalition for Education president and author Mike Zhao. The communist playbook, unfortunately, you know, they used to destroy China during the Cultural Revolution and, uh, about 50 years ago. Today, the radical left used the same playbook to destroy America. 
China's Cultural Revolution took place from 1966 to 1976, Communist Revolutionary Mao Zedong declared class war, bringing chaos and violence to the country. Schools were closed, historical relics and artifacts were destroyed, and cultural and religious sites were ransacked. The economy stagnated. Millions were persecuted for their political beliefs, and an estimated 1.5 million people died. As a survivor of the Cultural Revolution, Zhao pointed out the similarities in tactics used in American society today to those used in China back then. The first, you know, both the radical left and the Chinese Communist Party used the Marxist lie to establish the moral authority. And the second, they employed divide and conquer example, dividing the citizens into like the oppressors and oppressed. The third, they use the govern the country is radical ideology, not a pragmatic solution. The fourth is they use censorship and council culture to suppress oppositions, and also the fifth, they change the culture, rewriting the history, and also indoctrinating the citizens. And also, finally, number six, they stage in social unrest and transforming the government processes. To counter communist infiltration, Zhao said that America needs to stick to its founding principles, like protecting freedom of speech. We should unite all Americans and should not divide our citizens into the oppressors and oppressed. To prevent what happened decades ago in China from happening here in the U.S. A province in southwestern China hit by a magnitude 6.8 earthquake. The quake shook a capital city 140 miles away from its epicenter. But 21 million residents there are still under COVID-19 lockdown and weren't allowed to leave their homes when the disaster hit. Here's what happened. A magnitude 6.8 earthquake struck China's southwestern Sichuan province on Monday. According to state media CCTV, the earthquake has killed at least 46 people. The quake also triggered landslides, prompting stones and soil to fall from mountainsides and causing power interruptions and damage to homes. The China Earthquake Network Center reported the quake's epicenter was about 140 miles away from the province's capital, Chengdu City. That's where 21 million residents are currently under a COVID-19 lockdown. An internet user living in the city shared about what he experienced during the earthquake. He lives in a high-rise building and explained he didn't plan on exiting his building during the quake. He added that his building manager said that even during the earthquake, fleeing the building would violate local COVID-19 rules. A video online shows a group of residents tried to get out of the building, but were stopped by pandemic control workers. The workers argue that the residents couldn't leave the building, even during a natural disaster. A powerful typhoon made landfall today in South Korea's southern industrial area. At least two people are dead, ten are missing, and thousands have been displaced. Typhoon Hinnom-Nor hit southeastern industrial cities, causing strong winds and heavy rain. One resident was swept away and killed by strong currents during an evacuation. Another died after being buried in a house hit by a landslide. The number of casualties is likely to rise as rescue operations continue. The government has deployed Marines and amphibious vehicles to help with rescue efforts. Hundreds of flights were canceled, business activities were suspended, and schools were closed. After leaving the Korean Peninsula, the typhoon is moving northeast in the Sea of Japan. It's expected to brush the Japanese city of Sapporo later tonight. 
And still to come, a memorial was held Monday in Munich, Germany to mark 50 years since the 1972 Olympic massacre. During the attack, 11 members of the Israeli team were killed. And wine producers in Europe are getting creative with how they harvest grapes amidst drought and intense heat. Find out how this may affect wine quality after the break. Boris Johnson bowed out as British Prime Minister today, ending a tumultuous three years in office and leaving his successor Liz Truss a daunting list of problems to tackle. Well, this is, this is it, folks. Boris Johnson bowed out as Britain's Prime Minister on Tuesday, ending a tumultuous three years in office. He's leaving his successor Liz Truss a daunting list of problems to tackle, including a looming lengthy recession and an energy crisis that threatens the finances of millions of households and businesses. Johnson was forced out of office by his own Conservative Party over a series of scandals. However, he urged the country to come together and back his successor in a typically bombastic speech where he compared himself to a Roman dictator. And like Cincinnatus, I am returning to my plan. And I will be offering this government nothing but the most fervent support. Truss will be the fourth Conservative Prime Minister in six years. On Tuesday morning, she flew to northeastern Scotland to meet Queen Elizabeth to be formally appointed as the Prime Minister. Truss has promised to take, quote, bold action to get the country through the tough times, including by cutting taxes. That's despite warnings that it will exacerbate Britain's inflation rate at 10.1%, which is already the highest of any leading economy. Looking ahead, Truss has said she will appoint a strong cabinet. But she'll have to work hard to win over backers of her rival, former finance minister Rishi Sunak. She won 57% of votes in a bitterly fought leadership contest compared to Sunak's 43%. A comfortable margin but not as overwhelming as some polls had suggested. Half a century ago, a bloody terrorist attack marred the Summer Olympics in Munich. Eleven members of the Israeli team were killed by terrorists, marking one of the darkest chapters in Olympic history. In the early morning of September 5, 1972, a group of terrorists attacked the poorly secured athletes' village in Munich. In the middle of the night, hooded Arabs terrorists of Black September raid the dormitory housing the Israeli athletes. Two Israelis are killed, nine are taken hostage. The terrorists demanded the release of over 200 Palestinians held in Israeli jails. That request was rejected. Police attempted to rescue the hostages. In the shootout that followed, the nine hostages from the Israeli team were killed, along with a German policeman and five Palestinians. I was only married one year and three months to Andre. We were a young couple very much in love with a, a small baby. You know, we were on top of the world. He was chosen to go to the Olympics, which for every athlete, that is the dream, you know. So when I, I was in the room, I was with him at the Olympics, and I was in the room after they were murdered, just a few hours afterwards. And I looked around, everything was with blood. The blood came down the stairs. Trauma For me, the 1972 trauma will remain. I hope that the world better understands and is ready to do more. 
And the most important thing is not to support terror and understand that terrorism destroys every good thing. Other athletes, in particular Jewish ones, were forced to escape the games after the attack. My coach and I basically were taken down into the parking lot area. We were put in a Mercedes, I remember, in the back seat, and there was like this army blanket, and they put it, they told me to crouch down in the back seat and then put this blanket over me because the press now was looking at any cars that were moving in and out of the village. So the only people in the car were uh, a guard with a gun and then the driver and then my coach. So it just looked like there were three people in the car. Munich is marking the 50th anniversary of this tragedy. During a visit to Germany, Israeli President Isaac Herzog, accompanied by German President Frank-Walter Steinmeier, laid a wreath at the site of the attack. Despite previous controversy, the two countries have reached an agreement to compensate the victims' families in a joint speech. Steinmeier apologized for the delay in concluding the deal. That it took 50 years to reach this understanding of the last days, that is indeed shameful. Nothing can heal the deep wounds of 50 years despite all the goodwill. But I am convinced that after the understanding that has now been found and in common remembrance, we will come together again. According to German media, the amount of compensation might reach over $28 million. But German authorities did not confirm the figure, saying talks with the victim's representatives were confidential. A Russian court has stripped one of the country's last independent news outlets of its media license, effectively banning it from operating. That's over accusations that it failed to provide documents relating to a change of ownership in 2006. Here's more. The Nouvelle Gazette newspaper was one of Russia's leading investigative news sources and was founded almost three decades ago using the Nobel Peace Prize money won by Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev, who died last week. The paper's editor-in-chief, Dmitry Muratov, also a Nobel Peace Prize winner, was a friend of Gorbachev and led his funeral procession on Saturday. The decision is a political hit job that has no legal basis whatsoever. We were in court for allegedly not handing over some documents 20 years ago, when in reality it is absolutely obvious to everyone what's behind this. Novaya Gazeta had already suspended operations in Russia in March after it was warned that it had violated the strict censorship laws on coverage of the war in Ukraine. And later, in June, Muratov sold his Nobel Prize in a charity auction for Ukrainian children for over $103 million. Novaya Gazeta has a spin-off online publication elsewhere in Europe, which has also been blocked by Russian authorities. Muratov says the newspaper will appeal the court decision, although he expects the same result. A former journalist is sentenced to 22 years in a prison colony by a Moscow court. The Russian is charged with disclosing classified information, but supporters say he was punished for revealing Russia's arms deals. The 32-year-old was found guilty of treason in the landmark case. Prosecutors say he shared state secrets about Russia's arms sales in the Middle East to the Czech Republic's foreign intelligence arm. The former journalist says it was all open source public information. He has denied the charges throughout, and last month he rejected a plea deal with a 12-year prison sentence. His supporters say the case is retribution for his reporting. Ahead of the sentencing, the European Union called on Russia to drop all charges and release him unconditionally. 
The lengthy sentence is seen as the latest blow to journalistic freedoms in Russia. There's no sign of survivors from a small plane that crashed after flying halfway across Europe. That's according to authorities in Latvia who gave an update on a rescue operation. A prominent German businessman and his family were aboard the private jet. Spain's air traffic control service said it lost contact with the Cessna 551 an hour after it took off from Erez in southern Spain on Sunday. Two European countries sent fighter jets to follow the plane as it made its way across the continent. They were unable to see or contact anyone in the cockpit. Flight tracking data showed it turned at Paris and Cologne before flying straight out to the Baltic Sea where it spiraled into the water off the Latvian coast. German tabloid Bild reported the plane experienced problems with cabin pressure. For wine growers in some region of Spain, Italy, and Portugal, a record drought means production will be significantly reduced. The heat wave has also led to a different way of working. The harvest this year started early, and some vineyards are harvesting at night. Entity's Joy Duguid brings us this report. Here in the prestigious vineyards of Bordeaux, healthy ripe grapes hang heavy off rows of green vines. But this year something is starkly different in one of France's most celebrated wine regions. The harvest of the grapes has already begun. The earliest we'd ever started until this year was August 20th. This time we started on the 18th, so it's the earliest ever. It's the result of the severe drought afflicting much of Europe. In the Bordeaux region, as in most of France, it did not rain between the end of June and mid-August. But the season of heat waves produced excellent grapes. Fabienne Tetgen is the technical director of Chateau Smith Haute Lafitte, an estate south of Bordeaux. When I turn back to my 10 or 15 last years, the number of great vintage we did, we never do so many great wines. So for, for us, for Bordeaux, for Smith-Solafit now, the global warming is very positive. We have better ripeness, better balance, so it's very wonderful. But if you turn to the future, and if you increase the temperature with one degree more, perhaps you will lose a part of the freshness and the balance of the wine. Experts say this year's vintage may be better than ever because the grapes are healthy and well-balanced. The hot, dry weather also prevented the vines from getting diseases, such as mildew. Tetgen says he believes that yields may be 15 to 20 percent lower in the broader region, mostly due to smaller grapes and the fact that some were burned by the sun in specific areas. But he is adamant that it won't affect the wine's quality. Achieving such a harvest required creative changes in growing techniques. Before, vintners used to give vines a shape that allowed the grapes to get the maximum amount of sun so that they produced more sugar, which converts into alcohol. This year, they tended not to prune as much to let leaves protect the grapes. Among other techniques, vintners may reduce the density of their plots to require less water or work the soil to better conserve moisture deep down. Experts are also considering whether planting new grape varieties could be relevant. Further south in Europe, harvesters also started weeks earlier than normal to save shriveling and scorched grapes. A number of Spanish vineyards, such as this one in Madrid region, have switched to nighttime grape picking to avoid working in the sweltering heat. It is much better to work at night. It is not as hot. There are no bugs. You work more comfortably. Yes, we appreciate it. 
At this moment, it is impossible to work during the day. We would be grilled. But there are other advantages too. The main reason is so people can work in optimal conditions. There are benefits for the grapes too, clearly, because the cooler the grapes are when they get to the cellar, the less we have to bring the temperatures down to control it. We all benefit. Joy Dugid, NTD News. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, startups are showing off their ideas at Europe's largest consumer electronics event, including a new way to fend off allergies and a collar to monitor your dog's health. At a festival in Armenia, visitors learn how to open champagne with a sword and attend a sommelier masterclass. They're celebrating all things wine in a region where winemaking dates back millennia. Stay tuned for more right here on NTD News. Good to have you back. Porsche is speeding towards an IPO, and it will take a lot to stop it. The company's chief financial officer said today only one thing could make the automaker backtrack, and that's a severe geopolitical problem that would make the listing's importance fade in comparison. Porsche's parent company, Volkswagen, triggered a share sale for the sports car brand late yesterday. After months of internal debate, Volkswagen says the move is still subject to market developments. Some investors criticized the timing for the stock market debut, however. They are worried about a downward spiral of European shares, record high inflation, and Russia stopping the gas supply to Europe. But the CEO of Porsche says the listing could be positive for capital markets with few current potential investments. A collection of startups is showcasing the latest gadgets and innovations at Berlin's IFA Consumer Electronics Fair. Entity's Andrew Thomas has the details on the new products. Where is the nearest train station, please? Non-German speakers at the IFA Consumer Electronics Show don't need to worry, as long as they have Pocket Talk's new mobile app. It's a subscription-based service that translates conversations in more than 82 languages. Users speak into the smartphone, which then plays audio translation and displays a written translation. We have had customers from around the world, everybody from healthcare professionals to people working in logistics to people who are traveling to the middle of Afghanistan on rescue missions for helping people there. We didn't realize how many applications there were to this until we started to sell it. And for pet owners, Invoxia's smart waterproof dog collar monitors health metrics, activity, location, and more. The device can run for a month between charges. It's never been done before to have this like 360-degree overview of the dog's uh, health and activity levels so that, you know, it's preventive health for dogs. Basically, it's like Apple Watch is doing for, uh, for the humans. The pandemic has seen a big uptick in the amount of air filtration devices. Respire has brought a wearable air purifier to the show. Two fans inside the device do the hard work. I can show you how it works. It has HEPA filter inside. It comes from here. And it has two fans. They suck the air underneath the device. The HEPA filter cleans all the air from allergens and blows the air towards the mouth and nose. 
IFA Berlin is Europe's largest consumer electronics event. The show opened to the public on September 2nd after two days of media previews. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Over to Armenia, a festival is celebrating wine in a region where traditions date back centuries. About 4,000 people attended the event. The Dilijan Wine Festival was held in the northern Armenian region of Tavush, a big wine-growing region in the country. We thought that Dilijan is a historically important region where there are great winemakers, and we decided to gather in one place all the most interesting winemakers, people related to wine, those who love wine and who talk about wine, and have a great time. The two-day program included a sommelier masterclass and a traditional grape-crushing ceremony, as well as theater and dance performances about the history of winemaking. We have a very diverse program from painting with wine, where you can paint a picture with a bottle and a brush, to subrage. This is a master class on opening champagne with the saber. There are also wine casinos, tasting master classes. The aim of the festival is to promote winemaking in Armenia, which is a millennia-old tradition. A cave in Armenia contains evidence of the world's oldest large-scale wine production, dated to around 6,000 years ago. About 4,000 people attended the festival over two days. I came to Armenia due to an Erasmus Plus project here, and I decided to stay longer because it just the people are so nice, they offered me so many things. And then I realized they have a really amazing wine festival in Dilijan, and I had to come here because wine is where it, it, it came, the wine started here, and that's why I had to try it out. Among the guests were beginner winemakers too. I'm here, firstly, because I myself am already a beginner winemaker. Secondly, every such event, in my opinion, raises the attractiveness of Armenia as a country where the culture of winemaking is already over 6,000 years old. And in my opinion, this is a very wonderful event, both for us locals, for the citizens of Armenia, and for all the tourists. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Art experts in Italy are in the process of cleaning and restoring a 2,000-year-old Italian mosaic called a key part of Rome's history. It had been missing for nearly a century, but according to the FBI, the mosaic was recently discovered in the United States. The FBI says its art crime team was contacted by an attorney in 2020 saying they had a client in possession of an enormous mosaic of the mythological figure Medusa. And according to the FBI, it had been cut into 16 pieces and kept inside a Los Angeles storage unit since the 1980s. The client had no documentation, so they could not sell the pieces. It's not clear how the anonymous client came into possession of the artwork or how long it had been in the U.S. The anonymous client covered the costs of specialized shipping crates. They were then sent through diplomatic channels to Italy, and the artwork arrived safely in April. And still to come, Australia's oldest little penguin is now at the ripe old age of 21. He is still fathering chicks as his species is on the decline across the country. Find out more after the short break. SpaceX launched its 40th mission of the year and set a record for the number of rockets launched in a calendar year. Last year, it launched 31 missions, including crewed flights to the International Space Station. The Falcon 9 rocket carried 51 Starlink satellites and space flights Sherpa LTC. It's an orbital transfer vehicle sent into low Earth orbit. 
Starlink is a space-based system that SpaceX is building to bring internet access to underserved areas of the world. Following stage separation, the first stage returned to Earth and landed on the unusually named Just Read the Instructions drone ship in the Atlantic Ocean. An Australian little penguin is still parenting his chicks at the age of 21. This aging father is taking on a critical role in caring for his chicks. Most Australian little penguins live to the age of six years old. This special penguin dad is named Gordon, and he's the oldest of his species across the country. He now thrives at the Adelaide Zoo in South Australia. Despite suffering from cataracts and arthritis, he still leads an energetic life. Gordon is the father and grandfather of many chicks. At a time when little penguin populations are declining throughout Australia, the role that Gordon and his offspring play is critical to keeping this species alive. Gordon doesn't seem to be planning on retiring or slowing down his role as a father. He is currently raising another chick in his own nest. The father and son team of Wilhelm and Benjamin Eimers won the 56 Gordon Bennett Cup. It's the world's oldest gas balloon race. Setting off on Friday from St. Gallen in Switzerland, the German pair flew a distance of 975 miles in a straight line. They landed by the Bulgarian Black Sea coast near the Turkish border on Monday morning. The Eimers were airborne for two days, 12 hours, and 50 seconds. They flew along the border between Germany and Austria and through Hungary, Serbia, Romania, and Bulgaria. The Eimers are the first father and son team to win the race. 72-year-old Wilhelm bagged the fifth victory in his 29th competition. Benjamin triumphed for the first time in his fifth attempt. The prize-giving ceremony will take place on Saturday in St. Gallen. When it's time to get going for the day, most of us rely on that early morning brew, coffee. But is, the best, is this the best way to start our day? Here's Gina Marie who brings us Strong Mind and Body. Uh, the smell of our coffee brewing is a ritual most of us depend on to get going each day. A number of studies point to the benefits of caffeine. One suggests improved learning and intelligence by fine-tuning neurons and increasing brain activity. Coffee drinkers have a lower risk of cognitive decline, specifically Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. When it comes to genetics, science talks about nature and nurture. Nature comes from your parents. Nurture comes from environmental factors like diet, behavior, or mood. During experiments with mice exposed to caffeine, researchers found that genes are turned on or off. The mice exposed to caffeine in the active spaces showed quicker learning responses than the mice in a sedentary space. There, even with caffeine, those mice demonstrated the opposite effect. Their learning genes were turned off. Two factors provide protection against cognitive decline diseases, knowledge and caffeine. Active brains keep pathways open. Moderate caffeine intake protects against neurodegenerative disease. Moderation here means up to four cups a day. An antioxidant, caffeine reduces stress caused by plaques in the brain, which leads to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease. Dopamine, a hormonal neurotransmitter, controls body movement. In Parkinson's, dopamine neurons are slowly destroyed. Caffeine may reduce damage and death of dopamine-producing neurons. So the question is, tea or coffee? Caffeine is present in both. Coffee brewing methods differ, for example. 
Espresso is concentrated. Boiled or filtered coffee has less caffeine, followed by instant coffee. Bean varieties differ too. Arabica is widely consumed, but Robusta lives up to its name with higher caffeine content. Their antioxidants prevent development of chronic diseases, including cancer and diabetes. Coffee contains potassium, magnesium and phosphorus. Tea offers a light drink, but expect less caffeine. Increase caffeine intake by brewing black tea at high temperatures for three minutes. Green and white teas are brewed at lower temperatures. Herbal teas have no caffeine. Tea contains potassium, calcium and magnesium. The polyphenols therein maintain gut health and have anti-aging actions. That's all for today's program. We're really glad to have you with us. Please send us an email if you'd like to tell us something. We're going to put it on screen. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. I'm Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.